welcome to another episode of Time to Talk Fraud. I think this was supposed to be our month of love episode, but February is a short month and we're all quite busy, so uh, it has leaked into March a bit. Uh, I'll be our resident Athos today, holding together the team, uh, with me full of fraudulent knowledge fighting off the Cardinal Richelieu's of the Ford world, is Aramis. Uh, with us is our brand new member, D'Artagnan, uh, Mark. Uh, and unfortunately, Porthos is off fighting his own battles today in the world of fraud and can't be with us, so that's Connor. Um, welcome, guys, and welcome, Mark. I don't know whether you want to just give a quick introduction. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, so, my name's Mark. I work for one of the big retail banks. Known Amy for quite a long time from university. And, yeah, just happy to help. Be on it. Awesome. Right, it's good to have you here. And the main body of what we're going to talk about today is, is romance scams, keeping it linked to Valentine's Day in February and all those sorts of things. We'll pretend that we're in February. It's now March that we're recording this and releasing this as well. Uh, as always, we're going to start off with a bit of our fraud in the news. Before we do, we didn't get any messages this month, but please do feel free to send any in. If you want to, you can get hold of us on timetotalkfraud at aicorporation.com or you can find us on LinkedIn and Twitter as well. We do really want to hear your fraud experiences, any advice that you have and any tips that you can give and any messages that we've had in the past have been actually quite interesting and helpful. For the news, here we go. The one that I found probably a week or so ago around a fake marketing agency that managed to yes. convince, I think it was 40 or 60 people, to go and work for them with yeah. the promise of pay after six months. Interesting promise. And a lot of them ended up taking out loans and credit cards and ran up a large amount of debt for quite a lot of them for it to then transpire. I think it was two uh, employees uncovered it and sent out an email to the company to say, what was happening through another alias, I think, was set up oh, for them to be able to do it. it. It's quite interesting, but I think with the whole great resignation and people moving around jobs yep. and things at the moment, I think people have this perception of what they now want their job to be. So I think working from home all the time, being able to have it relaxed or kind of do what you want, and I think that's the feeling for a lot more people. And I think how it was sold to them, I suppose, a, a, a typical good salesman would be able to get anybody in for something like that on certain promises or conditions. Yeah, that's quite interesting, isn't it? Because you say there's a lot of people moving around at the moment, so the market for, for new jobs is probably the biggest it's been for a few years now. Coupled with with the remote aspect of things, you can, you can get away with quite a bit. Because I, I read the article as well, and um, the company were throwing out big brand names that they were apparently doing the marketing for. And I guess if you're not in an office and meeting these people, can you verify who you're meeting with when they're online? I suppose it's difficult to do it in person. You just know that you're going to their office. But Yeah, they used a lot of stock images and people's okay. images from LinkedIn and things that they'd taken those images and used a different name. So for their their senior team or certain people that had had history, they were using that history just with a different name. So I, I suppose in that sense, it was a lot of different fraud aspects that were being used, some identities to a certain degree of the pictures and images when you're on social media and people get messages to say, oh, I've been hacked, or you get another friend request with somebody with the same name with the yeah. same picture. You, uh, you do wonder whether it is actually them or whether it's an imposter. Yeah, I've uh, had it loads and especially the last couple of months lots of people have been sending out new requests requests to be your friends it's like well, who, who are you you know 
I speak to most of the people I know quite regularly, so when they send something like that, it does make you think. But all the people that have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of friends on Facebook and Instagram and that kind of thing, why why are you openly sharing all this information with all these people? Yeah, and I think for me, especially over the years, I've reduced what I share on social media. And you get things like the time off or, you know, your memories from next years ago and you look at what you were putting up. 12 years ago now, maybe sharing our age with this, and you know, Facebook and Instagram stuff is coming out. But you just kind of think, why would you share that kind of information? Yeah, it used to be the, um, those little quizzes. Um, the ones I remember are things like, what, what's your porn star name or your stripper name? And it'd be like, oh, the name of your first pet and the first road you lived on. Yeah. And you'd see all these answers below and slowly realise those are common security questions on, yeah, on yeah. a lot of financial websites, you know, the name of your first pet, the team you support. And things like that. Like, it's incredibly easy to get that information on social media. So yeah, I don't, I don't share anything on social media. I use it just to follow other people and their think their exciting lives. But uh, with remote stuff, so this job that was in the news, obviously they they join Zoom calls to speak to each other. They join Zoom calls with fake clients and things. Mark, with you in the banking industry, how's that been going more remote? Because I assume that's there's a lot of verification for identity in the banking industry. To do it more remote must be must be quite interesting. Absolutely. Whereas, you know, traditionally you walk into into the branch, you present your card, chip and pin, and, and that's it. That's a given. You know, seeing someone face to face. Now there's been so much attempted fraud and security attempts, that kind of thing. That now, especially working remotely, and obviously my company we use um, remote VPN, so that's all secured. We've got authentication. To log in, we have to sometimes have to log into the system once with a with a keychain, and then the second time again to access one of the main customer information programs. Do that again, which can be interesting when you're mid call and your system crashes out, and then you have to go through everything again. In terms for us, security wise, working from home, there's a big working from home policy, making sure you're in an office space away from other people, that calls can't be heard. If you're doing calling, documentation, make sure that that is kept secure or not even written down at all or just all on the work laptop. But if it's for customers, say if, like, if I'm taking an inbound phone call, you know, the security-wise, they would ideally come through pre-verified, like through directly through the app. That's all security done unless someone has you know, forced someone to log into their own phone and gone through that. But you know, when it comes to other identification ways, you know, the bank I work for is been quite innovative when it comes to technology so you know there is the in-app notifications now so if you call up we can send a notification to the app to make sure that they are who they are one-time passcode as well which is not as for me it doesn't seem as secure as something else but there's also you know voice biometrics as well that's that kind of thing is coming back in as well you try and make it quite hard for people to try and scam but it makes it easier for us, I think, for me to pick up on someone who is trying to defraud, potentially, or impersonate someone, just because I know that the majority of the customers know what identification options there are now. It's been, you know, what, seven, eight months since a lot of this higher stuff came in. So when someone comes in and says, I haven't got this on me, I don't know what this is, I just have to ask the questions, it kind of it rings a lot of bells and you just think, it's got to take care here. Yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense, to be honest. And I think, like you say, with with security questions, it's very easy to get the answers from someone. Social engineering is such a big part of fraud, particularly nowadays, that it, it's so easy to get that information. 
I think as well it's the stock questions, isn't it? Well, yeah. Every, every site you go to has those stock security yeah. questions of your mother's name, maiden name, your first school, your your face, your first pet, your favorite yeah. colour. There, there's no kind of variation on some of them. Because I I got caught out on that because a lot of the favorite one of the big questions is um, your favorite sports team, and my teenage email address we've all got one had the name of a football player in the email address. And I was once on a call with um mobile phone company and they were asking the uh, question. They go, oh, I'm going to assume it's this team because of your email. And you're like, Ooh. oh, okay. Need to, be, need to be careful on that one. Yeah, it's interesting. I think the one for me is there, there's one site that I use regularly and you actually had to choose what your questions were and what your answers were. So you okay. had three security questions. You had to put what they were. And then obviously put your own answers. So then when you log in, if they think it's not you, they may ask you one of those questions. So I, I suppose in that sense, you could, that's quite good security because you can choose your own questions at that point to. Yeah, stock answers. Yeah, as to something that somebody else may not know. But I guess on the flip side of that, you've then also got, if someone does an account takeover, they could go in and change it to something completely different. Do you then go down the how easy is it to change those stock answers? Or. Questions, even yeah. I don't know. Something to think about. No, it's all it's all interesting, and actually, this kind of links into our, our main topic, particularly talking about social engineering. And that is is romance scams. Um, big in the media, big in um, culture at the moment. Netflix have got a couple of documentaries about romance scams out. Uh, obviously, just cast the back of Valentine's Day, often February is referred to as the month of love. Romance scams, lowdown. What what exactly? Are they? Why? Why have we got them in a separate category to other thoughts? It's because there's there's such a, a big social and personal implication when it comes to it. You know, it is a potentially an intimate thing. People like to keep that private, but obviously, if they're being taken in by a scam, it's not really private. You know, all this information is being shared by someone to some, you know, hundreds of other people. Yeah, I think it's got its own category just because it is such a personal thing for a lot of people and it is really hard to admit that you're being, I think, being taken for a ride like that because emotions are one of the biggest things that people, that humans have. Tapping into that with the social engineering and then, you know, tell the technology. Yeah, it's a, it's just a horrible thing. I, I agree. It is, it does seem one of the most personal types of fraud. And one of the things that we always talk about, something we've mentioned a lot on the podcast, is calls to target vulnerabilities. And this is possibly one of the biggest vulnerabilities for a lot of Do we think that it's potentially increasing with social media and dating apps? You know, people have a lot more access now rather than, oh, how would you have missed a romance scam before the age of, of the mobile phone? You've on door to door called through the, the telephone book. I think that still does happen to a degree. Uh, you know, they've got a lot of auto-dial systems with recorded messages and just, you know, trying to get someone on the on the off chance. But, yeah, I mean, before, before technology, I think, obviously, you know, letters, emails, potentially, that kind of thing, it would have been more like that. But, but nowadays, yeah, with mobile phones. And one of the examples I've got, which we'll go into now or in a minute, but generally tends to be the cases I've seen have been elderly people, divorcees, Widows, widowers in their late 60s to 80s, they're getting on board with technology because it's not their thing. 
So it's all new, and they've gone and got a new phone, and they may not be as, best how to put it, as up with security as they maybe should be, or don't realise the implications. And then, next thing you know, you know, they're talking to someone on Google Hangouts that they've never met before, and they are thousands of pounds in the hole. It's really, that, that's actually really interesting, because, I mean, I can reference the, the two main documentaries on Netflix have been Tinder Swindler, uh, and Puppet Master for our listeners. If you haven't watched them, they are really interesting. Obviously, they're very hyped up because it's it's a, a mass market, but they are really good examples of this type of fraud. But the key one is is the demographics. So the, the Tinder swindler, by the name of it, you can guess, goes by Tinder. Um, he's targeting women that are kind of younger, uh, 20 to 30 years old, whereas the Puppet Master... Uh, was targeting people the same age as him throughout the entirety. So when he was in his 20s, he was targeting people in their 20s. When he was in his 30s and 40s, he was targeting people of that age. So it's really interesting that the mass market seems to be warning the younger people about this, that you're saying that this is this is actually happening to all ages. I guess it just doesn't really have an age to it, does it? Everyone wants to find love at any age. So it's... Um. Interestingly, Mark, you said that you tend to see more of the, like the older generation that are divorced or widowed and things like that. Do you think at that point it's not necessarily a chance meeting, but they've maybe put in, they've done some research on them? So do you think that they're looking for people that have maybe had somebody widowed in the, news, the local newspaper, um, that they're then maybe targeting them rather than going on a chance, I'll chuck this phone number in and see if I get a result. I think there is still still a really big element of chance when when they do it. It's, it's hard. I think it's hard to sort of fully grasp how they are getting getting people's information. I mean, obviously, like we touched on previously, you know, there's a lot of public information out there, and also, you know, the, the one of the examples I I have is elderly lady, like I said, has got a new phone. She has had been a widow, got a grown-up son, you know, in his, in his fifties, sort of that kind of thing. She comes in really upset and says, "Well, her son's going to disown her." And it's like, well, you know, what's going on? She said, "Oh, I need to send some money to this person in this different country." And I was having that conversation with them a bit more. It turns out that you know, she's got a new phone. All of her information is completely public on Google uh, for a Google account. And then the next thing she knows, she's talking to someone that's popped up miraculously on a Google Hangouts and said, oh, I'm, my name is so-and-so, I live in this country, how are you? And they just completely engineer it. And then the next thing you know, she's trying to send a couple of thousand pounds to this person to help his friend in Libya, who is in hospital, who's a soldier who can't get home, but he can magically get the money to her. And then we go from there. Yeah, it is, it's really horrible how, how they do it. It is, because... It's quite long term, is, is my view of it as well, because it, it doesn't, I mean, I'm sure it works every now and again, but you don't go straight into someone, you say, oh, hi, my name's so-and-so, I'm this type of person, can you send me $10,000? That doesn't work. You, you build it up. And I think, again, and it's referencing the documentary, because they're, they're quite a big source of the information, but um, the Tinder guy, 
it took him, I think it was eight months that he was having a conversation with a woman. He'd met her several times. It's not even just a purely online thing at this point. And it was eight months before he started asking for money. And eventually he'd taken, I think, something like half a million pounds um, off her in, in terms of she was taking out credit cards in his name, loans. And it is what you say. It's, uh, um, I'm in danger or someone I know is in danger, so he can't use conventional methods. You have to wire me this or, or, or do that. So I think that's where it hits the hardest is because it takes that amount of time to get to that point. So you you do very much feel awful when when it happens, when it breaks, when when the fraud comes to light because you think you've trusted this person for several months, sometimes even a year or more. And I think it's a lot easier, isn't it, being on the outside looking in and having that objective, as we were saying earlier, about the emotional side of it and that being very personal. I, th- I think a lot of people as well don't want to sometimes admit they've been they've been had that no. they've been defrauded, and I think to be defrauded in a way of a romance account because potentially at that point you're opening that person up to your family and your friends, mm. and, and I think that's probably one of the key differences with romance fraud compared to some of the other frauds is that they potentially get into more of your life or they see a lot more of your life than what you would in a normal you know, stolen credit card or something. Yeah. So it, it touches a lot more people, I think, rather than just that one individual. Yeah, normally when I've seen people and helped them with it, you know, it's either luckily managing to catch it before they've sent some money or when they've already sent quite a lot of money and that realisation just, you know, dawns on them. think, oh my God. they get, Yeah, it's em- embarrassment because they've invested a lot of time into someone that they think is actually cares for them and they, you know, invest in the relationship and they think it's going to go somewhere and then they start sending money for bits and pieces and it just ramps up and escalates. Uh, it is difficult. I mean, I don't know if you guys heard about the banking protocol. Um, no. So the, there's, a, there's a protocol in place um, whereby you can call the police and ring 999 and say, you know, so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so bank, uh, we need to implement banking protocol. Um, so they will try and aim to get police officers to the location within half an hour um, or or an hour if the customer's left. But, you know, you just got to have this. Really, it's really difficult because people interact with, with people in a certain way. And then no one likes to be told, by the way, you've been had, you, you know. Um, so when you tell, you've got to be really honest with customers and we've got to say, look, you know, I genuinely believe that you have been a victim of a fraud or a scam. I don't think this is right. Take them into a separate room and that kind of thing and say, look, you know, the police are on the way. It is that serious. You're not in trouble, but we need to make sure that it's investigated. I'd say 75% of customers have been really grateful of the fact that you know someone has listened to them and picked it up. But by that point, it does then get a little bit more difficult that this is going to, investigation is going to drag on for potentially months more because they've lost anywhere between one and 20,000 pounds or, or potentially more. Yeah, coming back to the emotional investment side of it, uh, it's really hard to, A, you know, accept that you've been a victim of a scam or a fraud, but then you've got to then deal with explaining that to your family as well and your closest relatives. It's, it's really hard. It's interesting on a couple of things that you said there. So one of them, is that 75% of people are grateful. The, the 25% are not 
How how do you deal with that? Are they still determined to give money to these these people? What? I guess you can't stop them from doing it if that's genuinely what they want to do. Absolutely, yeah, definitely. Um, so you never know how someone's going to react. I gave that kind of split just based on my my personal experience. But they say the ones that that do react in a defensive way, they they are there. They're right. They they don't want to believe it. They don't want to believe that they've been hacked. You know, they have invested emotionally. So you know, you know, so you know, when someone falls hard for someone in love, it's the same thing. They'd do anything for that person because they believe that is the right thing. Dealing with it is it can be difficult because they'll either get angry and then they'll or they'll, or they'll break down and then you've got to try and then reason with someone that's in a, in a heightened emotional state. So it is not just dealing with the, the money side of things. you then got to become a people person and then a negotiator and try and calm someone down, get them to, to listen, to understand, and then explain, you know, what, you know what's going to happen. And the, the, the ones that, some of the ones that I've had, they, you know, they've got so angry at the, at the situation they won't believe it they just they still they walk out you can't stop going and then when the police turn up um you know you, you have to give as much information as is required and um, sometimes you won't even hear a follow-up if, if they've gone so you know you, you have to leave notes on the account you know that kind of thing maybe put some forward markers maybe um and then but that's the thing it's really hard once they've left that environment you just don't know if they if they're going to carry on doing it or if they see the light and realize oh actually yeah it was a scam. Um, but with most people nowadays they've got multiple bank accounts. So if one person if one place stops it, what's to stop them go to their other bank, go online, transfer the money. They don't have to speak to anyone. Transfer it to another bank and then potentially it's gone again. So yeah. It, it can be really difficult. Because I'm, I'm as well thinking about transferring of money, like you say. My my app, if I want to move money to a friend or, or family or I'm paying, it always comes up with, are you sure you know the person you're sending it to? And sadly, those warnings probably aren't applicable here because the person doing it, they think they know who they're sending it to because this is a long-running scam, they trust this person. I use very open question, but what what more can be done in these situations to make sure people are aware of, of these types of scams that go on without offending them? It, it's a really hard question. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's, um, I mean, there's, a, there's a, I think a lot of the banks, obviously, they do a lot, a lot of marketing, uh, you know, social media, TV, um, you know, still in print, um, in conjunction with the police, fraud investigation offices, that kind of thing. Um, just to try and get that message out there, you know, there's so much marketing displays and, you know, it even went so far as the branch that I used to work in, we, we had a massive poster that we hand wrote, put up in the, in the windows that everyone could see to say, you know, take five, think about this. This is definitely something that you would normally do. Do you genuinely think you know the person you're sending to? That kind of thing. I don't really know how much more could be done. Um, I mean, for apps and security-wise, like online, you know, there are a lot more precautions in place. Uh, so, like, if, say, for example, if you're sending to somebody new, for example, uh, there is a limitation on how much you can send that day, but then there's nothing after that to just to say, well, you know, all right, they just basically ignored that sent 
a couple of quid the first day, and then they can potentially send up to, you know quite a lot ongoing on pre on subsequent days. I think that's where it comes into the fraud investigation side of things, away from sort of the, the, the branches, the front line stuff that I I would do. That's when it comes down to you know algorithms and fraud fraud teams picking up on unusual activity. Hopefully, interesting. So I guess if if we could try and look at the hallmarks of this type of fraud. I think we've gone over a couple in the fact that it's they're probably going to be targeting people that are, for lack of a better word, vulnerable. I, I, sounds like a terrible word because it brings up a, an image of someone and really this can happen to anyone because it, these are people targeting specific areas of your life. It can be anyone from the very lonely hearts people to, I mean, in a couple of the examples in the documentary were just people looking for friends on Tinder interesting scenario but nonetheless they're not they don't strike you as the desperate type of person that you would maybe conjure in your mind it takes time they build up the level of trust but also one of the hallmarks we've seen is building up an isolation isolating you from people that might talk you out of doing this decision Um, and again one of the quotes from these documentaries was that Barriers were not physical, they were psychological. I could leave at any point, but I couldn't leave. It's making the fraudster be the only person that you trust, the only person that has all the right answers, so that when they do come and ask for money, you don't need to think about it. And I think that's the thing that struck me, was that it's such a huge thing for me to send. The levels of money that they were sending were, you know, in the thousands, two thousand, ten thousand pounds. And they were just going, yeah. And it's hard from the outside to see that. But then obviously if, if my wife was in trouble and it was, you know, we have a joint account, but if I had a separate account, then I wouldn't hesitate to send that. And it's that level of trust that they are building up with their, with their marks, essentially. It's very hard to, like you say, just outright say, well, don't fall for romance scams because these people don't portray themselves as, as the bad guy. They're portraying themselves as the only person you trust. And they don't come at you for money randomly after a couple of weeks. They come after a couple of months, uh, even longer. Um, which so, I think is so. why this is different to a lot of the other phishing scams. Because it is a phishing scam at its heart. But most phishing scams want something immediately. Post office text messages, they want you to click the link and give them give them information immediately. This is a long-running fraud. It makes it a lot harder to, to try and stop. Do we think that, and again, it's a very open question. This is just based on probably what we see in the media, in the news, in documentaries and things. Do we think it's taken seriously enough by police, by the industry? I think it's become more serious over recent years. And I think that has probably helped with things like the documentaries and there's even some, you know, series on BBC and ITV mm. in the mornings and afternoons and evenings that are talking a lot more about this. So I, I think that's helping to put that pressure on. I, I don't necessarily think it's taken as serious enough. And I, I can't remember who said it. There was a statement the other day who said, well, they were willing to do it, the unwilling to do it, which is where the difference is. I think that's a very fine line. It's a very grey line. It, it is. I mean, it's authorised push payment, isn't it? APP4. And that means that you have authorised that payment. You have said, yes, I do want to pay this person this amount. And on the face of it, it's then very difficult to say, well, it's fraud. You know, 
It's obviously not fraud, you, you've authorised this. But it's understanding the psychological context behind everything that that makes it more serious. And, then, and the reason I say, are, are they taking it seriously enough, is, is because both of the, the fraudsters, the, the master swindler, they both did go to prison, but for a very short amount of time. And I do believe in, in rehabilitation rather than punishment, but they come out of prison and they commit the exact same fraud again. What what can be done for them? It, it's not just victims. Well, how can we stop victims falling for this? How, how do you stop fraudsters from repeating what they were doing? They were obviously successful until they get caught, but then they're doing it again. If someone, if someone has, has involved in fraud, they've been convicted, convicted. romance fraud like this, any different to you know, uh, financial fraud, so for example, you know, like in investment banking, whereby they could be completely sanctioned, they'll be blocked from working in that industry. Why not something similar? Point. And I, I think part of that is maybe that it's still relatively new. Yeah. In, in terms of your, your card boards, your efficient scams and things like that, I think if you look at it, yes, okay, they have been going on for years, but everyone knows that it's underreported. Everyone knows that a lot of these don't get reported because they're so vulnerable and they feel so so silly, so stupid for falling for it that they just don't report it. The shame element. Yeah, there is. And I think. It's one of the things that James and I have been talking about quite a lot is just that knowledge. And actually, yes, okay, it is shameful that, or for some people at least, that they've been caught out by a fraudster. But actually sharing your story can help somebody to not become a victim. It can be. And something we always have to remind everyone is that fraudsters are are very rarely chances. This is their full-time job. They put, they do a nine to five with overtime trying to con you. They are very, very good at what they do. There really shouldn't be that level of embarrassment. I know there is, it's, it's completely natural, but these guys are professional fraudsters. You know, they know exactly how to target you and exactly what to do. Yeah, as, as we've always said, if you do have a story, share it. Even if you want to anonymize yourself in it, but just sharing what you went through, what, what happens, helps other people avoid that. And I think that's that's really good in terms of tips, is that for all of us, it's it's quite hard to understand the mindset uh, of this, just because of who we are, where we've worked, how our lives are. But if you if you can help in any way in, in sort of friends, family, if you do have older relatives that might be a bit lonely, if you have friends that you, you know are on Tinder or things, always looking for, for that connection, it's just seeing how they're behaving, how are they interacting with, with this new person that they're talking to. And if they do start to, to talk about how they're sending money, just, just have a talk uh, as a friend. You know, the same same as Mark sort of said in the bank, it, it can be really difficult. But if you can save in the long term a lot of money, it would be something to work keep an eye on. Absolutely. Yeah, as I say, anonymise yourself. I know, see a lot of things on, on Reddit. I know it's not exactly the most trustworthy of places <laughs> uh, but you see all these stories come up people normally post in a lot of the, the, the forums this is what's happened I want to get this off my chest kind of thing if you don't want to go through something like that there's action fraud as well even report even speaking to the police on, on 101 if you think if you've got any inclination that you think you can do it you can still be anonymous but then they can then they've got those resources there to try and sort of actually do you think you may have been a victim of the scam? Can we take it further for you? you know, there's uh, the Citizens Advice Bureau as well. Like I say, all the all the banks are it's a very big topic. 
I say it's a, at least 50 to 60% of what what we deal with now, especially in the, the current climate when it comes to people resigning, doing different things, working from home more, that kind of thing. So you wouldn't necessarily be seeing someone face-to-face traditionally. So, yeah, definitely talk to someone about it, even if it's just a friend or, or if you feel that you've got a like, good relationship with your family, talk to your family about it. Absolutely. That was uh, quite a serious episode, that one. It's quite a serious broad, to be honest. Before we sort of leave... Mark, one of the things we always ask, ask our guests, uh, and it's purely hypothetical, so we don't get you in trouble with your job. Um, how would you commit fraud? What would be your your go-to fraud? It's really difficult to say because obviously you're aware of so many frauds and scams. But I think I think hypothetically, oh, probably go for something that is more socially engineered because you've got to get trust with people. You can do a lot of things, I suppose. But I would. Necessarily, probably keep it a bit more impersonal. Maybe like electronic, cashing that out wide kind of thing. Like <laughs> rather than rather than um, targeting specific people. I don't know. It, like I say, it's, diff- it's hypothetical. Yes, difficult question, definitely. But I, I think if that was the case, I would probably go for something that's more like like these authorized push payment kind of things. Send a message, get a thing, disposable everything. That's it, and it's really hard to track everything. I'm quite impressed that we've asked this question to three guests and we've not had the same type of fraud come up, which is quite, quite good. So uh, beware of any text messages and emails you get from Mark going forward. I can't get a hold of him next week when I know But no, thank you very much, Mark, for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Uh, and thank you to all of our listeners. Again, if you do want to get in contact with us, time to talk fraud at AICorporation.com. Uh, and again, we're happy to anonymise any stories. And if you want to send through any information that you find useful, please do let us know. Or even join us on a podcast. Yeah, or even join us if you if you want to be a guest. Um, like Mark has today, we're more than happy to bring you on. Mark, I hope that we speak to you again. I hope we have you as a guest another time for another theme. Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. <laughs>